Lighter Slavonia, what's up? It's me, Alex, I'm here. Uh, I'm talking about the meaning of life today, so welcome to Life Church Livonia. You know what I'm saying out here? We are continuing our Why God series this week, and I'm really looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed this series thus far. Week one, we talked about how when we encounter these why questions in life with God and with faith, we got to press in and wrestle and not run away. Last week, we talked about the book of Job the problem of unjust human suffering, and how Job is asking, is God a just judge? And how God meets him in that. If you missed those weeks, please check them out on our YouTube. This week, like I said, we're talking about the book of Ecclesiastes as it wrestles with the existential question, what is the meaning of life? Now, this is a series not on the book of Ecclesiastes, but on the question. So we are basing ourselves in Ecclesiastes, but man, I had to cut so much stuff that I was like trying to preach the whole book and maybe we'll do a series on it someday. Let me know if you'd like that in the comments. But I also want to just give a little precursor. Today we're talking about death and we're talking about death a lot. And I just want to acknowledge that can be a scary topic. It can be a heavy topic, but I promise we won't end without hope. And we all have our own fears around death, but I just want to let you know it's a safe place to have those fears here. And if things come up, just bring them to the Lord as they come up. Well, I, I grew up in a Christian summer camp, and I, I mean that literally. I didn't just go to camp in the summers. My dad was on staff there, and so um, we lived on the grounds. And there were a ton of fun traditions at this Christian summer camp called Bear Lake Bible Camp. And I enjoyed and looked forward to a lot of them. One of my favorites was this camp birthday song. It was unique to Bear Lake. And when it was, someone had a birthday and we could camp, everyone would get together at lunchtime and we would sing this birthday song to them. And it wasn't the traditional one. It went a little something like this. <clears throat> Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Sickness, sorrow, and despair. God! People dying everywhere. Oh! Happy birthday. Happy birthday. One year older and closer to death. Happy birthday. <laughs> This is one of my favorite songs to sing at camp. And wouldn't you know it, as the executive director of the camp got over 60, suddenly this song became less popular for some reason. I couldn't quite figure it out. Uh, and actually, <laughs> I think the woman was working in the kitchen, but there was one time we sang this to a woman, I think who was like turning 70, and she started crying. And then after that, we stopped singing the song. <laughs> the very like birthday song did not last a whole lot longer after that. And <laughs> it was a fun song for me as a kid because it was so far from my experience of life, right? I was a child. I didn't have a, a view of my own mortality, let alone anyone else's. You know, you feel like you're going to live forever. But as you realize you're not going to live forever and that death is real and it's not a joke, things begin to be put in perspective, right? I remember as I got older and I experienced the first death of my first grandparent and then the death of my second grandparent and then people at church started to pass away, it really began to settle into me. I'm not going to live forever and I have a short time in this life and what am I going to do that makes it worth it? How do I make my life matter? And that need really grew in me. And maybe this morning you find yourself with that same need. 
And that same question, how do I make my life matter? Just before Easter, we studied the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is, has this basic premise, if you honor God and you live wisely, life is going to go well for you. This is kind of the basic worldview of Proverbs. Even Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And then it goes on to say things like, then there will be health in your bones and your family will be in good health and you'll live long and you do the right thing and all things will work out for you. And as the Bible project puts it, it's wise to be wise, right? Life tends to go better when you live wisely. And that's true. But the book of Ecclesiastes says, hey, wait a second. That's generally true. But what about when it's not true? What about the exceptions to the rules? What about the fact that like the birthday song reminds us, no matter how wise or foolish you are, Everybody dies. So what's the point? What makes life meaningful? Because we all die, what will have been worth it in the end? The previous two weeks dealt with the kind of why questions that come up in pain and in suffering and in hardship. This week isn't one of those questions. This week it's a question that's just kind of existential, that comes with simply the human experience. Ecclesiastes is kind of a cynical book, and so some of you cynical people like it out there. Some of you have said it, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I go, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and if that's you, no offense. Hey, listen, <laughs> it's in the Bible for a reason. But you're probably cynical and a little bit jaded. And in many ways, this book is a balance to the biblical book of Proverbs because it highlights the exceptions to the rules of wisdom in life. Even when we do everything wisely, even when everything goes right, even when you know we, we try to do everything well, in the end, things still inevitably fall apart. Sometimes this is tragic, right, and happens too soon. For example, you may know someone who could say something like, listen, man, I saved, I got a stable job, I put in my nine to five, I got married, I had my 2.5 kids, we saved for college, I put stuff in my Roth IRA, and then the 2008 crash happened, and now I'm in my late 60s, still unable to retire. Right? Did everything right, but what was the point? Or maybe someone, I went to college, I got my degree, I took out the student loans, society told me it was the right thing to do, my parents told me it was the right thing to do, and now I can't get a job that allows me to pay back my loans and live. What was the point of that? I did it all right, but somehow I've ended up in a broken place. Some of the people go, you know, I took care of my body, I ate while I exercised, I took my vitamins, but I am still chronically ill, way too young. And what do you do with that? I was faithful to my husband and I tried to make our marriage work and I sacrificed and tried to love him, but in the end, we still got divorced. I did all the things I was supposed to do, but life didn't turn out. And Ecclesiastes points at those things and goes, yeah, what about those things? But it also says whether or not things go well in the moment, tragically in life, they still end. Let's take some of those same examples and go... You know, sometimes things naturally fall apart over time. Consider the guy that puts in the nine to five, that gets the promotion, that becomes a millionaire. But then in the end, his fortune gets given to his kids and grandkids and they squander it. What, what was the use of that? Or someone went to college, they got the degree, they got a great paying job. But then they worked there for 30 years and now they're going to retire and they go, wait a second, what did I just give my whole life to? Was that worth it? Or I took care of my body, I exercised, I ate well, I took all my vitamins but I'm still not gonna live forever. And I don't get to change my death date. Or maybe we worked on our marriage, we made it through the hard times, we sacrificed, we grew stronger, but then one of us passes away and we're not married anymore. Ecclesiastes points out that whether through tragedy or just simply mortality, all the things we give our lives to end because we end. 
All of us have to wrestle with this. And as uncomfortable as that birthday song is, it's true. We all die. And whether we know it or not, all of us are using our lives to take a chance. We're taking the chance that whatever we've given our lives to will be worth it. And the book of the Ecclesiastes is the Bible's answer to the quest for meaning. And as we study it, we receive our answer to the question, what makes life meaningful? What's worth it in the end? Now, in order to understand how this book answers the question, we're going to have to go back. We've got to go talk about some basics. And the basics we got to understand are the background of the book, the layout of the book, and the core term of the book, the core word. Once we do that, we'll be able to talk about what is meaningless and why, and then what is meaningful. So let's start with a little bit of the background of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that has two primary characters. There's an author who starts us off in chapter 1, verse 1, and who ends chapter 12. The very first word and the last word of the authors. But the majority of the book we're not hearing from the author. The majority of the book we're hearing from this teacher whom the author is recording. The teacher's intro leads us to believe that he's King Solomon, the wise king of Israel, and that's totally possible. However, it never outright says that. It only heavily implies it. It's also possible that the teacher that this, is, um, this book is about is from the school of Solomon, maybe an apprentice of Solomon and his wisdom, writing as a kind of ghostwriter, speaking as a kind of ghostwriter for Solomon, uh, coming from his experience and worldview. Either way, it doesn't really matter. The book's source is in Solomon, and it's from his teachings and worldview. So the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes sets out on this quest for a meaning. And he decides he's going to discern the meaning of life through his own personal experience so that he can discover for himself what makes life worth living. And then he wants to communicate that to other people, what he's learned. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is really his findings and reflections at the end of this journey of searching for meaning. He's almost like a scientist testing a hypothesis. And that's kind of how the book is laid out. See, the book is laid out in three different sections, and it's almost like, like a scholarly paper or something. You have section one, which is the introduction. In this section, you get like a snapshot of the whole book. What the book's about, what are the main themes, what are we talking about here, what's the core premise, like all that stuff is in these first two chapters. And then section two is really chapters three through 12. And this section is really just about like the whole kind of argument for why things are meaningless. And section three is the conclusion to the book as the author sums up everything the teacher has said. So that's kind of how the book is laid out. But there's a core word, a core term that if we don't understand, we're going to radically misunderstand this book. And that core term is the Hebrew word hevel. Say that with me. Hevel. Type that in the chat. Hevel. Good job. You guys are so good at Hebrew already. Well, Hevel is used 38 times in these 12 chapters, and it's one of the core themes, terms, and key analogies of this book. It's a word that's often translated as meaningless or as vanity, but that's not exactly what it means. So if you speak more than one language, you already know this, and if you don't, let me clue you in. When you're going from one language to another, this was written in Hebrew, right? When you're going from one language to another, often there's a bullseye word where it's like, this is... This word in this language means exactly the same thing as this word in this language. They have like a bullseye kind of meaning. But that's not always the case. Sometimes you have to have a couple of words to kind of capture the meaning of one word. And so if you can't get a direct translation, you kind of go from the bullseye to the next ring of the target to see, okay, what words capture like most of it, right? And this word hevel doesn't quite have a full 
like nail on the head translation. And so it's translated as meaningless or vanity. But the literal word, if you were to translate it literally, is like vapor or fog or smoke. So when we're talking about um, this, this term hevel, we're not necessarily saying things are meaningless. Take smoke, for example. It's something you can feel. It's something you can taste. People like the smoky flavor of things. It's something you can fill your lungs with. It's something you can burn your eyes with. You can sense it with your five senses. You can experience it. But when you try to grasp smoke, it has no substance. It suddenly disappears. You can't hold on to it and you can't make it stay. It blows away so quickly. It's something you can experience, but it's not something you can hold on to. Like smoke, you can't hold on to any moment in life either. And no matter how much you build up in your life, it all fades away in the end with death. So this is what the teacher is trying to capture. So as we read meaningless in the text, don't literally think it means without any meaning. That's not the point. Understand that he's saying the word smoke as an analogy. And that word is so malleable. It can mean empty futile, temporary, fleeting. It can be used symbolically to mean bizarre or absurd or confusing because even though it can be experienced, it can't be held. The meaning we do find and experience doesn't last and like smoke is ultimately blown away. So this leads us to what does the teacher want to communicate to us after a lifetime of experience in looking for meaning? He says this, Hevel Hevel, says the teacher, utterly hevel, everything is hevel. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? That's important. We're going to come back to that. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore wisdom. All that is done under the heavens. Again, we're going to come back to that. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are hevel, a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also the madness of folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good but that also proved to be Hevel. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding my wisdom, me with wisdom though. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. Whoa there, buddy. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was hevel, 
a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So the teacher introduces us to his basic finding. After allowing himself to experience all of life, he says everything is hevel. And he lays out these four categories that he tested and studied as he searched for meaning yet found none. He tests wisdom. He tests pleasure, which includes sex and substances and even entertainment. He doesn't separate them. They're all kind of in that same pleasure category. He tests work and he tests wealth. And these aren't just categories he tests, right? I mean, these are categories you and I test, don't we? I mean, I, I totally thought maybe I can find meaning. Maybe I can find uh, ma making my life matter in being wise and doing what is considered to be the right thing, right? We call people who try to put their eggs in this basket of looking for meaning and wisdom, we call them type A personalities, teachers, pets, golden children, right? They're the valedictorians, those of us who are looking for meaning and wisdom, hope that our good behavior will somehow make our lives matter, not just make our lives better. Others look for meaning in indulging pleasure and in the pursuit of happiness. You guys know who you are. You're the wild child, right? You're the party people. And you just were hoping that if I just say yes to every indulgent desire I have, be it food, be it sex, be it entertainment, be it substances, that somehow in satisfying those urges, I'm going to find fulfillment and meaning. But it doesn't work. Some of us look for worth in our work. I know this is me, man. We know that nothing good in life comes free, and we hope that by being the best, working hard, being the most faithful, diligent, gritty, we're going to overcome, we're going to succeed, we're going to shine, and ultimately we're going to matter. We're the valedictorians. We're the ones with low ages and high positions. We're the successful, the achievers. And one of the other big categories is wealth. This is the American idea of the good life, right? No bills I can't pay, all the disposable income in the world, retired by 35, van life, Dave Ramsey, rich dad, poor dad, you got, you know the books, you know the drill, right? And we admire people like movie stars and CEOs and the 1% who sacrificed and worked hard and retired early and did well and got lucky and inherited wealth and all the things. The teacher sets out these categories and says that he has tested them by his experience too, to see if they would give his life meaning. But he says that all of them were hevel. Why? Well, in the meat of the book, for 10 chapters, he lays out why he thinks they're all hevel. But I'm not going to read all 10 chapters. We're going to summarize for the sake of time today because the reasons that he chooses, that these are hevel, these are, have a, a lack of substance to them, are three reasons that come up over and over and over again. And the reasons are these things are hevel because they don't last forever, because they don't save us from death, because they don't minimize our suffering, and sometimes they can cause it. You know, if we've done the deep dive of looking for meaning, many of us have found these same things to be true. Our grandma, our grandpa, our dad, our mom, etc., believed in God, they served Him, they were faithful in church, but they had some kind of horrible circumstance happen to them, and God didn't prevent it. And we go, what the heck is up with that? Or sometimes, even worse, we know someone who stands for what's right, even in the church, and they get punished for it. They're fired, they're chastised, they're pressured into quitting their job. And instead of saying they were fired, people say, oh, it just wasn't a good fit. Sometimes we try to do the right thing. And it makes life a lot harder, not better. 
We can devote uh, our, our lives to our work, our money, our time, and even our relationship with God. And we pour our lives into the something that we think matters, and then someone comes along and totally dismantles it, undoes all the work that we had spent years and years doing. And we go, oh my gosh, what the heck? It didn't last forever. We see godly people die too young. We see wicked people live too long. And like the teacher, as we observe these things in life, it begins to make us jaded. It begins to make us cynical. It begins to disillusion us and harden our hearts. And this often leads people to deconstruct their faith. And people react towards nihilism, right? Nothing matters because we all die. They react towards relativism. Well, there's no real truth then. There's just your truth and my truth and everything's subjective. They react towards hedonism. My, the greatest good I can do in my life is just the greatest pleasure for me. Now, the issue with these reactions as worldviews is they don't solve any of the problems that come up, right? They just run away from those problems by minimizing them. Nihilism minimizes life. Relativism minimizes truth and tension and differences. Hedonism minimizes everything else in pursuit of what feels good for me. But the reason the teacher brings these observations and complaints about life up is not to make us run away from godliness or goodness, but instead is to balance our idea of godliness and goodness. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says it like this. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes is not trying to make you into an atheist. It's trying to make you into a humble theist. And I love that because what he means is just because you believe in God does not mean you have all the answers, <laughs> right? There are just things that happen in life that you don't have a good explanation for that no one has a good explanation for. And part of what the teacher is saying when he calls everything Hevel is he's not saying, I have all the answers. I know the, I know the answer. It's everything's meaningless. It's vapor. It's smoke. He's not necessarily saying that. He's saying that by testing all of these things through his experience, his experience has been insufficient to understand the complexities of life. And no matter how much we experience, life doesn't fully make sense. Because things you can count on, like truth and wisdom, don't always cause flourishing. Sometimes they bring pain, and sometimes they create suffering. And even things that feel good, like food and sex and drink, can bring with them the seeds of destruction when we are not careful. And the, the teacher just goes, this is crazy. This is absurd. This is Hevel. Ecclesiastes shows us that life is a paradox, but it's not a contradiction. A contradiction means two things can't exist at the same time. A paradox means two things do exist at the same time that somehow shouldn't. And with our level of experience and reason and understanding, we can't make sense of why. The paradox of life is that we cannot control our lives by our good behavior. We can't control our lives by amassing wealth. We can't control our lives by indulging in pleasure. We can't control our lives by working hard. Life is just too big, too broken, too beautiful, too mysterious, too complex. No matter what we do, we can't control when we die, we can't control how easy or hard life is, and we can't control if what we build lasts or not. So where does this leave us? Right? Like, how do we resolve this question of a meaningful life after some teaching like that? Well, if meaning doesn't come from living rightly, if it doesn't come from wisdom, if it doesn't come from, I mean, living rightly in wisdom, sorry, if it doesn't come from living in fun with pleasure, if it doesn't come from living focused with work, if it doesn't come from living well in wealth, where does meaning come from? And I think in order to understand that, we need to ask the question, okay, if those four things aren't where meaning is found, what do they all have in common? What are the, what's, the, what's the umbrella that all those things sit under? What's the through line? 
And I think we see it in chapter 2. Remember when I said we're going to come back to this later? In 2 verse 4 it says, or I'm sorry, 1 verse 4 it says, uh, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. That phrase under the sun is key. Wisdom, wealth, pleasure, work, they are under the sun. Meaning they're created. They're made. They're temporary. They're not eternal. God made wisdom, and wisdom is good. God made wealth, and wealth is good. God made pleasure, pleasure is good. God made work, work is good. None of them are inherently wrong or bad, but none of them are God. And the book of Ecclesiastes shows us there's nothing under the sun that gives us meaning. But what about what's not under the sun? You see, the reason that these things under the sun are hevel are because they don't last forever, they don't save us from death, and they don't minimize our suffering and often cause it. This means if we inverse this, we go, okay, that's what the teacher's saying about life, but what is that saying about what the teacher is looking for out of life? The teacher is looking for a world. He's looking for a world that does last forever. He's looking for a world where death is no more. He's looking for a world without suffering. The teacher is looking for heaven. And the teacher is looking for heaven on earth. And no matter where he looks under the sun, he cannot find it. But what about what's above the sun? What about the one in heaven, not the things under it? What about Jesus? Through death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus, things we do do last forever and echo into eternity. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will not be defeated by death and no longer need to fear it. But death will be defeated in a flourish of resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and so will we through his power. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we do not have to fear or control suffering because we serve a God who suffered for us and leads us through suffering into new life, somehow using that pain to make us more than we were before and not less. And our God is a God whom suffering cannot control. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven that the teacher is looking for is indeed coming to earth. The teacher wasn't even looking in the wrong place. He was just looking at the wrong things. Heaven is coming to earth. It has broken through in Jesus. In him, the hevel of the world began to swirl and to take shape and to find substance and form. Because through Jesus, suffering was healed. Through Jesus, dead people were raised. Through Jesus, the eternal broke into time. Through Jesus, this hevel kingdom of earth is being turned into the holy kingdom of God. Only God can fill the hevel of life and make it meaningful. The temporary satisfaction we find in wisdom, in pleasure, in work, in wealth are simply reflections of the fullness of meaning we find in the wisdom of God, the pleasure of his presence, the work of his kingdom, and the wealth of his power. When we look to created things to give us meaning, we look to fill a creator-sized hole with a created thing, and we leave inevitably empty. But when we turn to the God above the heavens to satisfy us, we find what we have been looking for all along. The book of Ecclesiastes shows us that even though we can't control life, even though we can't make it go the way we want, even though we can't always prevent pain, and we don't always have answers to all the questions, and things happen that don't make sense, even though the kingdom has not yet fully come to earth, there is still meaning in this wild, weird, backwards, upside down, broken world. But our meaning comes from our maker, not what's made.
Our meaning comes from our maker, not what he's made. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is looking for a world he knows exists but has never seen. He's looking for a life he can sense is out there, but he cannot grasp hold of it. He is looking for a meaning he can feel he was made for, but he cannot find it simply through his experiences under the sun alone. The kingdom of God is coming in Jesus, but Jesus has not come back yet, and so it is not yet fully here. And through that, in that sense, man, I sing with Bono as I go, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because there is something out there, a good right world where death is defeated, where suffering is no more, where things are eternal, and where this, this alien invasion of death into the human experience is eradicated. And in this grand in-between, after the resurrection of Jesus, but before his return, the hevel of the world remains. And we wait patiently for God's kingdom to fully come, even as we partner with him to usher it in through his church. Following Jesus doesn't mean we get out of suffering. It doesn't mean we can control it. It doesn't mean we always have an answer. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen to us, even if we've done it all right. It doesn't mean that everything goes our way, but it does mean that we have hope. That the world without heaven, where the smoke is cleared and all things are made new and right and good and true, that world is real and that world is coming and it's coming right here and it's coming right now. It's coming in me and Jesus died so that it would come in you too in greater and greater and greater measure. We are people of the tension. We are the choir of the in-between as we sing and meet and preach and pray in hope, knowing that one day death indeed will be no more, sorrow will be no more, pain will be no more, heaven will be no more. And the world that the teacher is searching for, testing for, looking for, indeed will be found. But in the words of John Foreman, he says, Till I die, I'll sing these songs on the shores of Babylon still looking for a home, for a world where I belong, where the weak are finally strong, where the righteous right the wrongs. I'm still looking for my home, for the world where I belong. Friends, we're in a world of death, and we're preaching life. We're a world in a world of darkness, and we're seeking to be the light. We're in a world of pain, and we are trying to heal. We're in a world of heaven and we're looking for meaning. And if you know Jesus, I just want to remind you today, that world you almost remember but have never been to, that world is real and that world is coming and it's coming in you. The kingdom of God is within you and it is our job to be a window in which heaven can shine through to earth. And as long as, we stop, as long as we're looking for meaning in little idols of created things, hoping that they somehow fill us, we are going to obscure that. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, my encouragement to you is let go of the little idols. Enjoy the good things God has made, but look for meaning in Him alone. And if you don't know Jesus and you find yourself looking for meaning this morning, I want you to know you're not just looking for meaning, you're looking for God. You want to know Him even though you don't know it. You want to love him even though you don't know how to say that. And I just want to let you know the best kind of work, the richest kind of pleasure, the greatest kind of wealth is to know Jesus. You know, it's funny. People ask me a lot, especially when I go to get a haircut or, you know, I'm in the grocery store. They go, yeah, what do you do for work? And I say, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh. And they start thinking through all, like, all the cuss words they just said, you know, before I told them that. 
<laughs> reevaluating our whole conversation up to that point. And they go, oh, how does someone become a pastor? And, you know, it's funny when they ask me that because I don't really think of like, you know, oh, you go to school and you get hired by a church. I think of like, why did I become a pastor? And every time I just think of, I think of my parents' couch in, in our living room back home. And I remember kind of being doing where the teacher is going like, man, what am I going to invest my life in? What is going to make it matter? What's going to make it worth it? And I had friends who were chasing jobs and trying to earn money. And I went, oh, maybe that. And I had friends who were starting to have sex with their girlfriends and, you know, playing around with that. And I was like, oh, maybe that. And I had friends who were, you know, really getting into work and talking about, uh, you know, stock market stuff and were really gunning for specific jobs. And I went, oh, maybe that. And then I had friends who you know, were just looking into spirituality and looking into philosophy. And I went, oh, maybe that. And every time I got interested in one of these routes, someone would end up on my parents' couch who was at the end of that road. And they would just weep as they told my parents, I got to the end of this road and it was empty and I was emptier for it. Can you please help me find Jesus? And over and over again, I just heard that and heard that and heard that. And I went, wow, Lord, only you satisfy, only you bring meaning. And if you're at the end of one of those roads today, I just want to let you know, only Jesus brings meaning, the meaning you're looking for. And if you're feeling a pressure in your heart or in your chest or you're feeling something in your spirit today, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, I want to matter. I want my life to matter. Lord, I want to know that it was worth it in the end. And Jesus, I just, I've looked at a lot of things and I'm willing to look for you. I pray, Lord, that if you're real and if you're there, that I would experience you. I wouldn't just understand or know or have an argument click. I want to experience you. I want to know you for real. And I want to taste this coming kingdom that I'm hearing about. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us via our digital connection card or the comment section. And we'll see you next week for our last, our last week in this series, God, Why Won't You Answer My Prayers?